I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of the podcast. This is a wonderful little milestone for all of us at the Ozymandias Project. And to celebrate this milestone, my guest this week is none other than Janet Varney, an Emmy-nominated actor, comedian, writer, and producer. I was so excited that she was able to join me on the podcast, not only because she provided the voice for the iconic Avatar Korra on Nickelodeon's show The Legend of Korra, but also because of her background in comedy. Unfortunately, we got so wrapped up in our discussion that I completely forgot to ask her about Korra. I am so sorry, Avatar and Korra fans. Next time, I I promise. However... I can't thank her enough for being patient enough to discuss Aristophanes and his famous ancient comedies with me. We also chatted about the cultural impact of growing up in Arizona, being pragmatic versus following your passions in college, and why Aristophanes' ancient comedies aren't done very often in the modern media. So take care. I hope everyone is staying safe, and I will speak to you all next time. Okay, so um, I just want to start by asking... Uh, like what kind of childhood stories were you either really into or did you have read to you uh, or maybe that you just discovered on your own? Um, Because I just I'm really interested with, you know, how people fell into, oh, I love stories. What kind of stories do you listen to? Sure. That's a great question. Um, I'm trying to think of like being young enough to be read to um, versus like reading on your own. Um, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of like my child, like actual children's books, like picture books and stuff like that. Um, I, and you're saying books. Yeah. Like being read to versus like, I mean, I don't know why I'm talking. I mean, because like a lot of folklore and stuff was taught to me in school. Or like as part of you know kind of storytelling stuff yeah um i i so i'm kind of gonna build up to that but i'd like to just start with like if you were read to or if you know you were 
like a little kid, but able to read like a really basic sort of picture book where there's like two sentences on the page, but there's like a nice shiny picture. Um, yeah, be a I mean, I, yeah, I, well, I, I definitely started reading really early. Um, I skipped first grade, uh, cause I started reading in, pre I mean, I'm sorry, I skipped kindergarten because I started reading in preschool. Um, and I was, I just, that was just a thing I had a real aptitude for. So, um, I'm sure that I was read to like read to with, with mature books that I wasn't reading yet, but I was definitely always the kid who was reading at a much, much higher level than whatever, yeah, whatever my grade was. Um, my dad was an English teacher, a high school English teacher. And like, he got me reading when I was like, you know, seven and eight years old, I was reading Ray Bradbury and stuff. Cause he was like, I don't know, like maybe you can read this. Do you want, you want to read this? Let's see if you were interested in this. <laughs> so, um, so I, I was definitely a, a, a voracious reader uh, from a very, very young age. And, um, and so that was a huge part of my childhood, even just being an only child and spending time alone and reading. That was, that was definitely a huge part of my life. Um, and then beyond that, I'm sure my, my, I mean, I know my dad must've read to me again. I just can't think of what would have been that in between stuff. I don't have a lot of memories of that. I think, cause like, I want to say that I, my grandmother had the, all the Oz books, like the Wizard of Oz books, but I, they never read them to me. I just read them. So, um, but definitely reading and, and, and books and, and, that kind of storytelling was a huge part of my my childhood for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, I am young enough that uh, when I was, I think, in either kindergarten or first grade, my dad started reading the Harry Potter books to me. Um, nice. I, I think they had already come out for a couple of years, but I just wasn't old enough. Uh, and so he ended up reading like the first three books to me. And then I just kind of uh, got to the point where I was like, okay, dad, you're reading way too slow. You're doing <laughs> sure. the voices all wrong. Like, this is not okay. <laughs> so then by the time he brought me the fourth book, I was like, please don't be offended, dad. Please still love me, but, um, I'm going to read this by myself. Okay. Aww. And so he was, was like, he okay oh. with it? was he like, he was definitely okay because he wanted to encourage me to keep reading, but he was still, he was kind of sad just because he'd spent yeah. the first three books coming up with like very distinct, funny voices <laughs> for each character. <laughs> he wasn't sad because it was a rite of passage where he would miss spending time with his daughter. He was sad because his performative skills weren't being put to use anymore. Exactly. Oh yeah. He was, he was definitely just like, Oh, I don't get to do that. And he's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> that's great. And, and it's so funny because I was like never a big theater kid. So I didn't get why he wanted to do it. Cause I was always more into like sports and stuff, but my dad all through college, like he was doing theater and stuff. So back then I had no idea this was like central to his sense of it's connecting me to my past, my childhood. Aww. But yeah, so it was initially hurtful. And then he was like, okay, you know what? She's reading. It's fine. Just <laughs> go in a corner and read. So yeah, so that was really fun. Um, and then I would say, uh, so when you did actually get to school then, uh, do you remember kind of what age or what grade you were when uh, either, I, nobody really had like a mythology class back then. People had right. like a regular history or something but um did any of your teachers like assign you fun 
folklore mythological type books or at that age were you like okay I can start going to the library in my school and I have some fun books here that look great um that you yeah I picked up yeah I was I mean I definitely went to the library a bunch as a kid as well I spent um time with my grandparents in a smaller town in Arizona uh, like during the summer and there was a library just like right at the town square it was all very picturesque but um and so I would rent uh, rent. I would, I would check out tons of books uh, at the library. It was definitely like, how many can my grandfather and I carry um, just in our arms? Like, I don't know why no one ever brought like a bag, but uh, I'm sure, I, mean, I feel like the limit was 10 and I would always check out 10 at a time. Um, and, uh, and then my libraries at the magnet schools that I was going to in Tucson when I was in elementary school were, had great, great libraries. And um, I feel also really lucky because the, 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 just the Tucson school district that I went to was very focused on the magnet program and on, um, you know, like creating a, a, a sense of um, a diversity, not just like, like ethnically, but also locationally, like, because Tucson is not a huge city in terms of population, but it's sort of sprawling and, um, and it was, and so the, you know, the bus system was definitely like getting kids from across town to be going to school with kids that they weren't, they weren't just like growing up next door to. Um, and, uh, and because the first, my, my first through, um, sixth grade schools were in the historic barrio of Tucson and it was a, um, a SSL ESL, uh, school. I had classes in Spanish. Um, I, I was always being taught in Spanish as well as English. And, um, and there was a ton of, of both Mexican folklore and a Native American folklore that was incorporated into my whole learning uh, all the way through junior high. And then high school was more of just like a traditional, you know, basic kind of high school. Um, it didn't necessarily have emphasis on those things, but those were really important to me. Um, that was sort of how I came to understand where I was from. And, you know, we, my, my fourth through sixth grade school was in a really old Spanish building and, um, uh, you know, it was across the street from a flower tortilla factory and, uh, and then across the street was, um, a beautiful, uh, Mexican Catholic, like altar, like outdoor sort of altar. And, um, and then like around the corner was a, a historic, like, you know, how they have those sort of historical society preserved homes where it was like an adobe home and they, you know, where you would go through and see where we would, like, this is where they, this is the mortar and pestle that they would grind, you know, corn on and that would, they would make it to masa. So that was just like very much a part of my, um, my, my childhood and it, and, and that's, those things to me are, are just completely invaluable. Um, because, you know, there's, they, they just. I don't know, like that, that, that to, it's almost the incorporation of the imagination and storytelling with actual history. And I think um, if you can have that, there's something that crosses, that sort of bridges that in a way that I think some kids don't get, where you just don't, there's not a strong sense of 
like the the magic of history or the the magic of where you you come from or where you live it's more like okay there's just use that this is a bad example but just to be like harry potter versus you know like like that's so so incredibly important my life was full of that stuff as well but there's something there's something that i it's like intangible about um folklore that's connected to your community does that make sense yeah, yeah. Any I, kind of sense at all? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's really, really unique just just because of the fact that you got to grow up in a really unique place where there is so much of that like cultural heritage baked right into the community. Because uh, I can tell you from growing up in Chicago, I love my home more than anything. I don't think I'd want to live anywhere else in the country except for here. Um, but we are just like a city in the flat and kind of boring Midwest. Like uh -huh. we have the lake and you know, yeah. it's people are just like, oh yeah, Chicago. It's and then and then you know, people will list cultural things, buildings, whatever, but you don't get some of that more um you, you definitely don't get the cool Native American aspect or we're not down near the border near Mexico we're not even north enough to be near Canada so there's like nothing <laughs> right. like there's like nothing so yeah. uh forgive me everyone who loves Chicago because I do love my hometown <laughs> I'm just gonna preface this with don't hate on me love the shy um but no it's so unique and because of that uniqueness, did you have like a favorite myth or a favorite story um, that maybe not necessarily was passed down, but that you just kind of heard and were like, oh, this is the coolest thing ever and then latch onto that? Um, that's a great question. I think uh, I, I mean, I was really this. And, and by the way, like, please know that maybe I should be acknowledging this more um, more, more like upfront, but uh, I absolutely recognize that like, I'm a blonde haired, blue eyed, ain't like Anglo girl, which is not something I ever really wanted to be or cared about. But I, that doesn't mean that I don't also have, you know, understand that there was like, ac like accidental privilege that comes with that, um, in a way that, you know, I, I don't, I don't feel great about, <laughs> nor do most people, but, I, you know, I especially, it was, it was very much something that I, I didn't understand, uh, until I was getting a little older because I was in an environment that, that really was the sort of ostensible great equalizer, you know, it was like, I got lice too. I always had lice. Like we all sort of, you know what I mean? Like there was no, I just didn't have a sense of like, oh, I'm special. I also come from absolutely no money at all. Like I got, you know, had to collect food stamps with my mom for a time. And when she was, you know, just couldn't find work. So, but you know, but there's also this, this like, you know, um, irrefutable empirical fact that I look the way that I do and I live in the country that I live in. So, uh, all that being said, I, in no way would I ever want anyone to think that I was like interested in culturally appropriating something in, in an inappropriate way. Um, and it's, and you know, no part of me wants to like try to own or embrace something that's not part of my literal genetic history, but that, but, but also it needs to be okay to have these conversations and to be honest about the fact that like, that is what I was raised with. Like I was. I, I, I love Las Posadas. That meant as much or more to me as anything that was traditionally just like Christmas. Um, so those things are, you know, those things are just like part of, part of my 
my um, my nature versus nurture, my my nurture, you know, core is in, involves includes all of that. And I was also really um, I I was like I loved Native American culture. I loved learning about the Hopi and the Navajo in um, Arizona. My family is like bleeding heart liberal, and so you know it was ingrained in me from a very young age what happened and what we and what people did to Native Americans. Um, and you know what the res is like, but what many of the traditions that they held on to, and you know we would go to like powwows, and we would go to you know things that were open to the public, where there would be you know rain dances and people making kachinas and all of this kind of stuff. And to me, again, that was um, that was really really um, meaningful to me. And like even when I was at San Francisco State, I interned at the American Indian Film Institute, and and. I was a theater major, so I couldn't have a minor. They don't allow you to have a minor, but it would have been American Indian Studies. And, you know, again, like there's just a lot of stuff. I guess what I'm trying to say is like, unsurprisingly, um, <laughs> real culture and heritage was more interesting to me than like my sort of being a, a, an American white mutt background. Um, for better or for worse, that was just like how I was as a kid. Uh, so all of that stuff made, um, really made an impact, particularly with, you know, sort of the, the landscape of Arizona and origin myths and, you know, the, the idea of, um, of all of that stuff, like the origin myths, mythology through, through so many different cultures, I think is so wonderful and fascinating, you know, how things were explained before science was as pervasive as it is. Yeah. And so because I guess, there was so much of that baked into your community then uh, when you were in school uh, and they were teaching history was kind of that just baked in. So you did get this wonderfully cultural sort of um, historical experience or did they sort of stick with the normal uh, Greco-Roman European influences or did they mix yeah. them together? That's a great question. I, I think I haven't given that much thought, so I don't want to misspeak um, because heavens knows like there's so much I don't remember that I'm sure someone I went to school with would be like Janet you're an idiot don't you remember that blah 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 but my instinct is to say that they were separate my instinct is to say that we were taught the conventional like ho-hum hey the civil war was about this hey world war one was about this blah -dee blah um and that the emphasis on local heritage was kind of its own thing um, but I don't feel like there was, I would love to say that there was like a sensitivity to an interaction with um, more, uh, like a more broad sense of true history rather than Greco-Roman history. Uh, but I don't think so. I think it was like, that's that. And then we also make sure to like, you know, enrich kids with this other stuff. But I, I don't really feel like there was that much crossover. Oh, that's a shame. That would have been a great yeah, opportunity just, just because of its unique location, which is not something, you know, I'd get here uh, in Chicago. Yeah. So uh, hopefully maybe in the future uh, that'll change because um, yeah. that, that's a great opportunity. Um, and then when you eventually went to college, did was there a, a mythology class offered? Oh, I'm sure there were mythology classes offered. Did I take any mythology classes? Um, no, I didn't. I don't think. Again, I was like, so much of it becomes theater oriented. And certainly there's like theater history and there's mythology that's part of theater history. 
um, insofar as obviously like the Greeks were uh, very theatrical and were, you know, incorporating some of their mythology into the plays that they were that they were writing and stuff like that. But um, but I don't think I ever took like a straight up mythology class. And again, like I really could be wrong. <laughs> I tried so hard to remember, but it wasn't. But it did. You know, I I I took all kinds of like you know sociology slash um, like philosophy all these things that kind of crossed over um, into where there was like a great kind of crossover from like sexuality and, and the law and like ethics in film and all that stuff. But I don't think I ever took anything that was just like straight up mythology. Huh, okay. Well, okay. This next one's kind of a two-parter and I promise I'll do my best to tie them together. Uh, one, I would say, do you remember any kind of mythology or classics in general courses or any ancient world courses being offered uh one and then two if you knew because they were extensively um advertised would you have wanted to take one or more of them i i'm sure that there must have been but i don't i don't have a strong sense of it um Again, like by the time I was in college, there was a degree for me of um, what am I doing? What am I going to do with my life? Why would I ever think that majoring in theater would be a good idea? I already know that I'm never going to make any money doing it. Um, there was just a lot of, <laughs> there was a lot of like angsty, like what are my, okay, so what are my general education requirements outside of theater? How, how do I get them done? Um, because I wasn't, I didn't have like a real attachment to, I mean, I love taking, like, I definitely sought out like photography classes and, and, and I loved, you know, my sort of English and, and creative writing classes. I remember taking a world religion class right before I dropped out of school. <laughs> and then um, when I moved to San Francisco, that was, it's a whole other sort of thing where I, I didn't want to get a degree in theater by then. But then I kind of had to because that's all the credits that I had. So I just didn't have a strong grasp of what was available to me outside of what I had already studied or what fell under an, a certain requirement that I could like check off a list. So I feel bad because I just don't want to misrepresent either of the colleges that I went to that may have a very rich and very well-known um you know, ancient worlds, ancient mythologies from, from all over the world, they may have programs like that. And I just wouldn't necessarily know about them because I was so in my, like, in like going on my track. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that is definitely not unlike a bunch of stories that I have heard from friends and uh, acquaintances uh, pretty much throughout my entire time at college. Uh, and I will say it wouldn't shock me if they had something, I, I don't know what size, but if they had something and didn't actually advertise all that much. Because um, one of the the main problems that I, I talk about both on the podcast and just in life uh, is we don't seem to do a good job in any way, shape or form of advertising that we are a thing. We are here. 
um, when people ask me, oh, you were a classics major? Wait, what is that one? Is that like classical music? Or two, they're like, mm. how did you even find that? That's so weird, like, like niche type thing. And I say, mm -hmm. I did not go to college knowing that it existed. I didn't. I knew I wanted to study the ancient world. Uh, and I thought the closest thing I could do was like anthropology, I think. So I think I went in as an anthro major and I was like, I think yeah, that's closer. what I would expect. That's what I would expect that it would fall under that. Now that you say that, I'm like, oh, that's what I would expect. It would fall under that umbrella. Yeah. So that's what I did. And then like two months into my first semester, uh, my friend was like, okay, so it's time to go create your schedule for the next semester. Go talk to your advisor. Good luck. So I went and talked to the woman. And like, first thing she asked me was, what do you want to do? What do you want to study? Because I can tell you exactly which classes you need to do that. And so then I literally described, I don't even remember how I described it. It was probably rambly and horrible because freshman. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, so I just, I like told her something and then she just kind of like puts her pen down and then does the clasp hands put them in front of her on the desk <laughs> and I'm sure. like oh no I'm like uh oh she's gonna tell me I'm crazy like what's happening so yeah and then she just goes oh sweetie that's not anthropology she's like you literally just told me you like hate science and you're really bad at it she's like there's a crap ton of science in here so uh she was like what you're describing to me is our our friends over in the classics department here's the name and email wow. the advisor go talk to him Wow. So a week later, I went and I talked to the advisor, went right in and I came out of that like hour long discussion and I was like, my life has changed. I have oh, found so cool. I have found my soul, my place, my yeah. people. Uh, and awesome. so, yeah, so I fell into it that way. Um, I did know there was a myth class, but only because I sneaked into it with a friend who had it in her schedule. I tell people don't do what I did because you shouldn't do that. <laughs> but I did. I sneaked in. And so I didn't know there was a whole world there until later. Um, and, and so basically that experience really got me to think about, well, how are people advertising? Because at the University sure. of Missouri, where I went to school, um, we had like a mid-sized apartment. Usually classics departments are pretty small unless you're at a really elite university, um, which is it's 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 a whole different issue because I like to touch on accessibility, which is just they're not accessible because if you are lucky and then you find out early that these are majors, the best institutions are Ivy Leagues, just like the most exclusive places where you <laughs> good luck is, is all I'll say. Right. Just good luck. Right. Um, and so that's that's kind of a shame. Um, and so I guess since you unfortunately were not made aware if they had a thing or if there were things uh within theater then um i i'm so curious because i actually have never talked to somebody who approached mythology from a theater background uh so i'm just wondering at how similar or different it is and how they weave the mythological aspects in teaching you know the origin of all great stories how do they teach that if you're approaching it from a theater perspective god that's such a great question i wish that i couldn't remember um, <laughs> I mean, ooh, like in theater history, which I did love those classes, um, you know, I mean, it would be like, we, we, you would be studying a 
play and it, and it would go i mean there there were theater history classes where you would you know like you would start with or the earliest sort of known theater that can be read and interpreted you know by modern day folks um in one form or another and and sort of move into modernity so obviously we were talking about that kind of mythology um the Greek mythology, perhaps for you as well, was definitely covered in, especially I know my senior English class in high school. But the problem for me is that many of my my best memories and the things I remember learning about the most were in my primary schools, including my, and then high school. And then in college, I was just so all over the place and working two jobs and like putting myself through school um, that, that the classes and courses themselves are all mixed up with like paying my rent and being an adult or like being, you know, a 22 year old adult or whatever. So that I'm so, I'm sad to say that there's stuff that's just fallen by the wayside because my life was just really packed with all different sorts of stuff. Um, and, and so it's, it's hard for me to remember, but, but certainly like contextually, if you were going to be, you know, reading the Oristia or if you were going to be reading, you know, about like Agamemnon or, or, you know, um, any of those eras, uh, like you would, you would, you would definitely study the kind of context of what was happening in that time. And because the, the mythology of the gods and that, that particular piece of that, those particular cultures were so you know, important, um, that they, that that's just stuff that would invariably come in. Um, and then, you know, you, and then it would sort of be, again, kind of like boiled down to like reading a particular play and talking about it and analyzing it or whatever, and then moving on to, to whatever the next, um, piece of the, the educational program would be for that particular class. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, again, like, I'm sure it's just like sort of bite-sized pieces of what you were, what you were studying, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I don't think it's warranted that you need, obviously, all the, the background and the really intense classes into uh, Greek culture that, uh, that I had to have, but uh, that's just the differences between, well, you're not actually yeah. going to, you know, have to read it and then write papers uh, in depth on it. Um, <laughs> right. But I will say that I think, you know, that was, especially with, with Greek theater, you know, you, you get such a strong sense kind of psychologically because everybody's like always talking about the catharsis, right? Or talking about the idea of tragedy, um, with a capital T and kind of how complexly, um, emotions were being worked through and, you know, the sort of idea of, of, um, deep, uh, superstition and stuff like that you know that's all woven in so you know you do get this sense of like okay so you know there's the sea you know there's the, often the seer the person that can see into the future who most often isn't listened to and like all the ways that socially and psychologically these these experiences and these these um fears were being processed and kind of dealt with through theater that was really fascinating and i think they, they those classes do a really nice job of of contextualizing that part of mythology and how important mythology was in terms of your daily understanding of the world and why or what is happening to you 
Yeah, I honestly wish that if I'd had time, um, I, I probably would have gone back and, and taken some theater classes at Mizzou just out of sheer interest to, to see if there was any uh, crossover, no matter how yeah. big or little, it would have been really interesting. But uh, yeah. I was kind of, I was really wrapped up in what I was doing. So I did not yeah. have the wisdom to to think about that. No, that's great though. So, because so many people, so many young people don't find that thing, you know, that they hope that they maybe will find in college. They don't get, they don't find that yet. And so there is a sense of, you know, aimlessness or like just punching your time card with certain classes. So being, finding a thing that you're passionate about that you become absorbed in is really, was really cool from my perspective. Yeah, I, I will say I was, I felt luckier than a lot of my friends who would change their major like four times because they just, mm -hmm. like I felt so bad because I would talk to them and then I just would see this like look of silent desperation on their face where they oh, were convinced sure. that they had to be like a, a financial planner or, or an accountant or something, but they yeah. were just miserable doing it. Cause they were like, yeah, I'm going to make money. Cause my parents told me I have to go, I have to make money. I have to support myself. I am miserable. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I don't know. It, yeah. It's I, I also realized that I do, I did also have a relative degree of privilege. Uh, my dad was able to uh, pay for all five years of college. So I luckily escaped without massive student debt, which is a privilege mm -hmm. that I think like, oh gosh, I don't even what I, I don't know what I would do with, with debt at this point. Um, oh, but God. at the same I mean, time, same. Like, I mean, I, yeah, same. It was like, what, how would I ever, I had no, I just did not have as bright enough sense of what my future would be that I felt like it was, that I could possibly take on debt. <laughs> that, was just, that was terrifying to me. And honestly, sometimes I sit here and I think, would it have been different if I had to pay my way through college? Would I have felt secure majoring in something for five years that I was like, this is like crazy hard to get a job if you stay in the field? I mean, I, I have no idea. That's a good question. I mean, because that's, yeah, I was putting myself through school and I, I, that's exactly why I was like, what am I doing? Theater. I'm so sure. You know, yeah, sometimes I would sit there and say, I wish I had a talent like that, that could at least translate to being good with people though. Uh, I, theater's not easy to, to make it in. I've, I have several family members who uh, either took minored in or took classes and they were even like I, I don't think I could make it so you know yeah. props to you for for kind of being like I want this but also like okay I'm gonna be pragmatic just so I can make sure I get through and <laughs> yeah. know what I'm doing and yeah. then if I want to go back I can do it later um but maybe maybe you'll remember maybe you don't but um when you were doing theater in college do you remember doing any plays shows whatever that were directly based off of like a famous myth book play something that's, yeah that's a good question i didn't do anything i don't think so i didn't do anything i know i didn't do anything greek i only did one shakespeare play um uh, which obviously isn't based on myth anyway. I mean, that was, that was just like right out of his brain. Uh, that particular one. I mean, I don't know. There may be, there probably are some Shakespeare plays that are like loosely based on Greek myths or whatever. But um, 
I, I really wish I were a Shakespearean scholar right now, so I could speak <laughs> to that. Uh, but uh, but no, I don't think so. I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything. Mm -mm. Not everyone does. I mean, all schools are different because some definitely I've talked to friends who are like, oh, yeah, we strangely avoided doing anything based on, you know, an old Greek or Roman myth or show. Um, and I think that was a deliberate choice by schools because they're it, it's kind of like some Shakespeare's where you just it's so overdone, you know, that right. everyone would kind of be like, oh, yet another Romeo and Juliet. How great. Right, right, right. So, so I can understand maybe not wanting to do that. Um but at the same time, I don't know. I'm like, but that's kind of the origin of some some of the best stories ever told. Uh, no, I, mean, I agree. I agree. And it may be that some it may be that some were done. It may be that some were done. Um, but yeah, I didn't. I you know, I, I, I did not. I was not a part of any. And so, kind of moving then from those college years, uh, sort of, we're gonna just kind of hop, skip, and jump over the part where you were not acting. Um, mm -hmm, I'm sure. sure that's a really interesting part of your life. Uh, <laughs> Don't but... worry. Don't <laughs> worry. It's not that interesting. Okay. Well, okay. Um, so I won't feel too bad. Um, but kind of after you got back into acting, um, did you get to do any kind of work that was related to based on involved with any kind of mythology or folklore once you were in the working world another great question um like actual pre-existing non-recently world-built mythologies i'm trying to think if there has been anything oh good um Nothing is springing to mind. I would say in particular because, you know, when you sort of end up in comedy for the most part, then that stuff really doesn't come into play. But I don't know. I don't know. That might have been something if I had like looked on my IMDb page. <laughs> not that, not that like there's tons of stuff that you do for friends or for other people or that just never goes that never airs and never ends up like being acknowledged by anyone except the people who were in it and like the network who paid for the script or whatever but um but I'm I'm hard pressed to think of anything I mean like it would be very handy if I was like remember that movie Hercules I was in it <laughs> like that would be that would be very handy but I'm not I'm like not I, I'm definitely not boring. I, I can't think of anything. Um, I can't think of anything. That's okay. That's okay. I mean, I, yeah, I, I feel like if you're going into like, I want to do dramas or some long mini series, I guess that maybe would make more sense. Um, I, I have no idea. I don't know. Um, but I'm going to take this great opportunity because you mentioned comedy, because I know that's a huge part of your career and your life as well. Uh, and so I'm going to start and say, okay, well, one, I sort of disagree that the classical world doesn't mix perfectly into the comedy world, uh, because there are so many great Greek comedies that I would love to see brought to life either through like a sketch comedy show, through oh, sure. TV, through film, and it's when I read them sometimes, I'm like, why, why has no one 
done this yet. Uh, so it's kind of perfect that you're in comedy. So I can kind of ask you, uh, were, are you familiar in any way, shape or form with any of Aristophanes plays? Oh, for sure. There's no way that we didn't, that I didn't read some Aristophanes in, in, in college. There's no way. Now, ask me to name what I read. Could not do it. Could not do it. But the minute you said Aristophanes, I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, there's definitely, you know, because we were also looking at Commedia dell'arte and like, you know, the, the like when, when French comedy. So we, that would be something that we, we started off with, you know, as like one of the earliest forms of comedy for sure. Yeah. And so I would say he's done a lot, obviously. Um, but out of his three most famous ones, I would say. Most people are familiar with uh, Women at the Thesmophoria, um, which okay. is kind of a... So just the, the short recap version uh, for people who are unfamiliar with the play, it's essentially kind of a, a satirical look at women in power in the ancient world. So when the men of Athens just like can't get their shit together, they have no idea what they're doing, uh, the women essentially kind of disguise themselves as men and go into um, the boule, which was their like like council of five hundred, essentially their their system of government, um, mm -hmm. and they go and try to like get shit done. Uh, and so it's just it's this really great sort of dual look at is Aristophanes being serious, like actually writing a a good play, thinking, hey, this is my take on women actually being able to successfully navigate their way around politics and do things? Or did he write it as a big joke thinking, women could never be in power. Look how stupid right. and ridiculous it would be if they actually got power. Um, that's right. kind of the eternal question of that one. Is that, and is that, I would say that, that while the idea of women making the decisions about what happens in Greek culture is in a comedic way is definitely uh, familiar to me. Um, I can't say that the title of that, like, I don't know that, that, that that's, um, that that's something that I read. I don't know that it is. Um, sometimes if programs are like strapped for time, because that's not like the number one, most well-known one, a lot of yeah. people skip it. Uh, you may be more familiar with the most well-known of Aristophanes plays is the Lysistrata. Lysistrata. There you go. Yeah. Yep, there you 100%. go. That yep. Is absolutely. So that's obviously the yep. one that, that people kind of talk about and do all the time. Um, yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why more people haven't taken kind of a stab at it. People take the theme from the play um, and add it to their own works. I've seen several modern things where maybe they'll give it a credit and say uh, loosely based off of. Um, right. So they'll maybe take the sex strike aspect of it. But right, I just, right. I really haven't seen a devoted effort to do the original kind of play. Uh, yeah. I don't know why. Now, from your perspective as someone who's kind of involved with comedy and in the film and acting industry, uh, is there like hesitation just because of the, the I don't know, is it the, the mature themes where there's some really... Uh, like really explicit imagery described that you just it's so totally inappropriate for the screen that you just wouldn't want to bring that forward like what's the deal 
That's a good question. Um, I, I feel like very uncomfortable even thinking about trying to speak for, for any, anybody, um, because I have, because I, I haven't had a conversation about this with anybody. Um, but I, if I had to make a broad sweeping generalization that is based entirely on conjecture, I would say that, um, while, and, and, and I can't speak to theater because I've not been involved with theater in quite, 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 quite some time. So outside of the educational sphere, um, I can't speak to it. I have a feeling, <laughs> I have a feeling that, for example, the theater company that several of my friends belong to called Antaeus Theater Company most likely very much embraces the classics. And I'm sure that in addition to their, the Shakespearean dips that they take into, like, there's just no way that they're not that they're not exploring some of those old, those old classes. And you can't, they're not allowed to be called Antaeus without like, <laughs> without doing that. So, um, so I, I think I would have to separate everything I'm saying entirely from theater and just say, um, from like a comedy perspective in, you know, in Hollywood and filmmaking or whatever, um, there's an, there seems to be an obsession with recreating the same modern story over and over again, up to and including just rejiggering the literally the exact same story with the same script and just like doing a quick rewrite and recast and then they make it again, not unlike superhero movies. Um, there just just does not seem to be a whole lot of interest in um, exploring classics in a commercial sense. And I think that it's probably for a pretty cynical reason, which is like people think that no one is interested in the Greeks or people think that no one is interested in, you know, that it's very art house or it's very indie, you know, and that it's not commercial and it couldn't be made commercial and people wouldn't care about it. That's what I think is that's what I, again, total conjecture, but based on the rest of the cynicism I have about this business, that is kind of, that fits in nicely with that. Which is super sad because it, it seems like maybe only the sort of weirder ones or the ones that are just not as famous, as sad as it is to say, uh, people just don't want to take a chance because there are great Greek stories that we do kind of, try to attempt to create and recreate. I mean, the the Brad Pitt Troy, right? And then Netflix sure. just did the new Troy Fall of the City, which I was like, okay, so you basically took everything from Troy, changed some of the things, made it a little more historically accurate, and then made it into a eight episode exactly. miniseries, you know, like, okay, exactly. we've seen exactly. the story a million times. So, um, and I, I, there's so much of just greek and roman and egyptian myth that's sprinkled in throughout the culture uh that i guess sometimes you can you can actively be like oh yeah yeah that's that's totally based off of or um or sometimes it, it's kind of slipped in there i know with the harry potter books uh i don't think people realize how much myth is like crammed into those books because yeah. they only see the oh well he dies at the end so he's kind of like a jesus figure right or this that and the other thing and i'm like that's sure. like scratching the it's like i gave you a toolbox and all you want to play with is is a nail honestly it's so sad right right um, right, right right i i took a whole class in in college it was like a harry potter and religion class um and so we got to learn all the uh different sort of um religious but also mythological aspects crammed in there everything from how she put the names together to the uh, the materials that you would need for the different ones and the trees. It, it was like really complicated. Sure. I can't That's even really begin cool. to do it justice, really but, cool. 
but it was one of my yeah. favorites. Um, I would love, I, was, I mean, I would love that. I would love, I would love to, to find out more about, you know, yeah. Like really getting into the weeds on, on where a lot of stuff was pulled into contemporary cultural stuff that people now just attribute to the contemporary, you know, I think that would be really fun. Yeah. And actually, as it happens, uh, a professor friend of mine actually does teach a Harry Potter class uh, at DePaul University here in Chicago. I think it's shifted to online so anyone can try to take it or audit it. Well, well, well. For anyone interested, please take the class. Support an amazing friend and professor of mine. She's amazing. Um, But okay. There are obviously other contemporary things that have been created that people have tried to maybe bring to, to life and maybe done an interesting job with. Um, are you familiar with the, the Aragon series of the Percy Jackson books? Yes, uh, but I, I'm, I'm familiar with them slightly. Like I've never, I don't think I've seen, wait, is that like, is that How to Train Your Dragon? No, that's totally different. No, um, different. yeah, Percy Jackson. It's the yeah, Rick Percy Riordan Jackson's book different. series. Um, yeah, I've never read it. it and I've never seen any of the, I don't think I've ever seen any of the movies. I wouldn't. Um, <clears throat> it's not an endorsement of it. <laughs> no, it um, but they will they will generate um, many, many conversations. Um, but those those are really fun. And honestly, those are kind of some of the materials that I've noticed have brought more students into the field because they would they would read them. Um, I read them when I was in seventh and eighth grade, I believe that's when the first one or two had come out. Uh, so they were kind of great to just um, sort of wet our appetites for hey this is really cool like and it's and it's really funny too I mean it's told from the perspective of what like a 12 year old boy so it's written with all the the humor you would expect um from a 12 year old boy sure um so yeah there's there's so many great book series that I would hope that one day would get uh, decently excellent maybe I hope um yeah uh, yeah so just uh, the the last part of the podcast, it's kind of a, a dual thing. Uh, so one, uh, just it's it's probably hard to recap because it's such a, a contentious and, and thorny issue with everyone I speak to. Um, but we don't like to fund our humanities. I don't know if you've noticed in any way, shape, or form. Mm, yeah. Uh, yes, I and <laughs> yeah, and so. For my podcast, obviously, I talk mostly about all the ancient fields, whether that's classics or Egyptology or Assyriology, Old Norse studies, all the the really ancient stuff that no one's ever heard of or maybe you've heard mentioned once. Um, But I would imagine, is it kind of the same thing for theater programs where I I don't know what the status of that, but I mean, I'm kind of assuming it's a humanities, so it's kind of lumped together with the with the stuff that doesn't need attention. Um, have you have you noticed kind of anything there? Yeah, I mean, we the, the theater departments might have a little more luck in that because it has that performative value to it, and because it is sort of linked to entertainment in a more commercial sense. I think there are it's a little better, but. Um, but for sure, like universally, you know, that the issue of, of not funding the arts continues to be this like ongoing 
problem and and you know i i fall very much on the side of like that's an incredibly huge mistake and that it's um i just find it utterly tragic and uh and yeah i don't i I don't know what the answer is because obviously like there's it's it's such a it is such a huge conversation and the, and the, the the status of education and who should have access to education and all of that is 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 very very um it makes me very angry <laughs> so uh because i i don't this idea that you can i don't know whatever i the, the idea that everyone is afforded the same opportunity in in america is a huge freaking joke anyway of course it is but um but if you want to shine the light on you know you can sort of some of it's like it's so overwhelming to take on that concept and that truth that it's very depressing uh so if you you know choose to sort of hone in on a particular place like whether you talk about medicine and and health you know obviously there's a huge inequality there or you can you know focus in on on race you can focus in on education if you focus in on education then you know you go then you can get just you can just like define your rage by the the inequalities in education and um and and so certainly this idea of like um like what's a what's collateral damage or what's you know what's a what's a sacrifice you can you can be willing to make so that you can make sure that kids in public schools still um, are taking math tests that rank them at a certain percentile in, in the city or in the state or in the district or whatever, like that somehow that's okay or it's just going to have to do is um, is beyond infuriating and it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, I, I, I just can't, you know, like, I just think that art is, um, art is a, a it's an accelerant towards people being autodidactic. It's an accelerant towards people understanding themselves and understanding the world. And um, it's such a, you know, it's just like you, know, we, you and I were talking about earlier, that the idea that it can be a bridge towards math, towards science, towards um, these other things that are quote unquote somehow, you know, more important. Uh, it, it, it just seems so... I mean, it's like, you know, we don't, I guess Americans don't know how to be holistic anyway, but it feels so holistic and vital. And it feels like, well, if you have, you know, if you have like, this is like to use a very uh, contemporary, stupid topical term, but like, if you have a fever because you have COVID and someone's like, why don't you go ahead and take some acetaminophen and you'll be fine. Like, that's ridiculous. It's preposterous. Everyone would say that's at, that's utterly preposterous. You're just treating the symptom. You're treating that one symptom of this thing that could kill you, but that's not the approach that we take to nearly anything. And so this idea that, you know, oh, it's just a dance class, who cares? Or, oh, it's just a painting class, who cares? It's like, those classes could be the difference between whether someone decides they wanna to go to college. It could be the difference between whether someone survives their abusive upbringing because they had a beam of light that they could hold on to. Mm, I'm getting so angry. I'm getting so angry. No, it's oh, great. It's getting great. so angry. Anyway, oh. um, this is why like I can't go into politics because yeah, I like would have a nervous breakdown and like drop dead of a heart attack. Oh um, no! <laughs> but yeah, so you know, I I find it critically important, and I and I find it um, devastating that that it's not a priority. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Like this is obviously a really contentious topic, but this is why 
I honestly decided that it's, it's probably one of the two main reasons I decided to start my podcast, which is we all get mad about this stuff. We all bitch at politicians. We all just kind of tell our family and friends, oh, this makes me mad. Uh, but there didn't seem to be some sort of concerted platform to really talk about not just why it makes us mad or we're mad, but you know, I, I really hope to capture this great spirit of discussion of why is it actually important to us as a society to fund our humanities beyond, and, and it's really sad because in this time that we are living in, we do, we seem to assign monetary value in terms of money to be earned to everything. Uh, and so for things like the ancient studies, you go, oh, well, that's not going to make any money. That's not going right. to do anything. So obviously it's not important. So how can it actually help us? Uh, and so my response to that is, well, as someone who studied classics, who was in the ancient world, I can tell you right now, uh, you know, what would you say if I said, okay, look, we're living in a pandemic right now. It really sucks. Oh, I know someone or I personally um, know what they did in 1918 to help defeat that pandemic. Would you like some help? Would you like some advice? Because I yeah. studied it. Who's going to say no? Who's going to be like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need I, I don't need your insight. I know. So there's and there's so many I was I was kind of listing it off the other day with a, a friend of mine. You know, how many other career paths, jobs, activities do are there that we maybe don't even realize can really benefit from either taking a course or, or getting a double major in classics? You know, it's it's kind of insane. It, I would imagine for, you know, being an architect, I don't know, um, something you, you can absolutely you can learn a lot. Um, I don't know when, when you were. When you were not acting, I forget what the job you were doing, but I remember thinking, <laughs> hey, classics, that, that can really be an influence on that, too. Uh, I was I was real interested in interior design. So I know you just said that about architecture. And um, but I think, you know, that's like, yeah, I mean, I, you look, you can go backwards with that into, you know, textile production and, um, you know, when we talk about people talking about, you know, go buying local, going local, um, people talk about like, well, I want to grow my own tomatoes. It's like, you know, there's, there's so much practicality to understanding how things were done. And also, you know, I mean, please, you can't have a, you can't have a saying that everyone's heard that is history is doomed to repeat itself and not think that it's important to know, <laughs> like, to know history that's sort of the whole point you shouldn't be proving the adage that is continually thrown out there over and over by defying it like that's not really how it's supposed to work i mean there's common sayings right i mean if you aren't taught anything about the iliad the odyssey or have never seen any kind of Troy adaptation. And if I just like came up to you and was like, oh yes, my poor, poor knowledge of Greek mythology has always been my Achilles elbow. Does that sound right? <laughs> like, you know, if you, if you don't yeah. know what that is, you're like, oh, okay, I get, I'm like, that's not a, okay, never mind. You don't get the reference, moving on. You know, it's, yeah. it's just so prevalent in everything. Um, Okay, so at the end, I usually ask all my guests if they would read a, a poem, and then uh, it's, it's a really cool poem. It's my favorite, uh, and it's sure. uh, the namesake of my podcast. It is the okay. poem Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. 
very very famous poem it is uh it's a it's a beautiful 14 line sonnet so it is quite short fantastic ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory. But boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Here we go. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Ah, that's such an epic poem. Um, It is my favorite poem of all time. I read it in either high school or college, and it is stuck with me. Uh, And so the the purpose of me asking all of my guests to read it, one, is so that my audience can get a different variety of people reading it because everyone kind of does it differently, which is great. Um, But also then after just... It's, it's kind of like what you do in, with your pod with MASH, where just the, the first couple things you can think of. Uh, I would love to get your thoughts on, you know, how does this poem make you feel? What do you think about who would benefit from reading this poem? Who is it geared toward? Why is it just just sort of any kind of thoughts you have on it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think 
<laughs> there's like I just did a reading during the pandemic of uh, of uh, Planet of the Apes, so of course, like this totally reminds me of that, um, which is you know like the sense of the mythology of our own American culture being this you know um, this 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 mighty thing that could never be toppled, you know, and so. There, that's a very, very powerful image in that movie. I mean, obviously, the entire movie is about humans, you know, human beings' inability to not destroy themselves. Um, but and I'm speaking the, of the original Planet of the Apes. All due respect to the more recent ones, um, which have some really great stuff in them. Uh, but you know, I mean, this is you know, here we have this this the the remnants of the Statue of Liberty, which is like one of the most ironic things that you could you know see destroyed um, by hubris. Uh, and so, yeah, this, this idea of hubris, this idea of um, every civilization thinks it's the most important and the most everlasting, um, the idea that, uh, that there has to be, that, that it will end and that there has to be someone who then comes upon it in order for it to have any bearing or meaning at all. Like, like the fact that someone even saw that statue and could tell of it is so important. Um, because this king, this work, this era, you know, whatever is being um, discussed in, in the poem, this Ozymandias, you know, uh, this idea that, that not only are you, not only are you not relevant anymore, you don't even exist unless the people that follow bother to see that st those stones and there, that there is even a person that has seen it who can tell the tale, who can continue the the story and that you know so that's what this I mean obviously it was like I probably my first time reading it did not seem familiar even though Ozymandias as a word is familiar to me uh and I was a real cold read but like as I was reading it those are the things that were coming up for me yeah no that's exactly kind of what I what I was looking oh, for oh. just and it also reminded me of the Canticle for Leibowitz, which is one of my favorite books. Have you ever read it? I have not. I have not. I have oh, not. you should read it, Lexi. But you I should know. read it. It's made for you. It's like okay. made for you. It's a. It's basically the a classic that is you know a modern classic. I mean, the whole idea, of course, is like you know monks like monks that we that we bomb ourselves all the way back to ancient culture, and that monks yeah. are keeping keeping the history of the world alive, but that it's a very dangerous history to have. So it's to be very closely guarded because the fear is if we have this literature that tells us of our past civilization, then we will strive to recreate it and then history will repeat itself and we'll just destroy ourselves all over again. It's a great book. And, oh, there, yes. and the whole, it's in three parts, Fiat, Homo Fiat, Luke's Fiat, Voluntus Tua. And it's, um, it's, each one takes place in a, in a much later era from the last. And, um, and by the end, there's a, there's a very, very strong tie to, uh, the, the Yeats poem, Slouching Towards Bethlehem. It's a great book. Okay. Uh, you, you, you might have, have an to... assignment. I was like, you might have to remind me cause I'm going to forget the, the name <laughs> or I don't even want to attempt to spell that I'll without checking it. Please you. do. Uh, cause I, it, it sounds like something fabulous that I do actually really want to read. Um, yeah, I, I love getting suggestions. That's the, what else am I going to do while in quarantine other than read there books? I have there a pile of unread books on my desk. Uh, but yeah, no. So I, I love the poem and it reminds me of, yeah, it's really the, the ephemeral nature of 
political power. I mean, I don't know. So since you are unfamiliar with this poem, which I love to uh, see who is and isn't with it, um, I will tell you, Ozymandias is actually just the, the Greek name of the pharaoh Ramesses II, who oversaw pretty much the most prosperous, wonderful period of the Egyptian empire. So to, to see his, his entire civilization just gone, buried in yeah. the sand, uh, it really talks about, you know, it's, it's a collective, right? You can't just build monuments to yourself and then expect that you're going to be remembered forever because you, you, he didn't just do it. I mean, he had to commission the whole statue. And if it weren't yeah. for that person, we wouldn't know. Um, so I don't know, for some reason, the, the modern version of that, my brain always flashes me to like an abandoned casino in Atlantic City or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it's like the modern cool. Ozymandias. So yeah, uh, yeah. there's so much about the poem that I love, but uh, I really I mean, love your take on it. Yeah, it's great. I think like, I mean, I'm sure someone has said or will say like a Trump Tower. I mean, I feel like that's kind of another... I feel like yeah. that's really apropos right now. I mean, <clears throat> just saying. Um, but yes, so it, I don't know. You can. It, it's a great poem. It'll. It'll. It sticks with people. I've tend to to find that some people who've never read it will come back to me in a few days and be like, "I thought more about it. Oh my gosh, I wish I had more yeah. to say." It's, this a is great, so no, it's a great poem. Great. So, but anyway, I'll have to send I want to my dad because my dad's a. As I've said, he was a teacher and he's a huge, huge poetry, history and, and classics walk. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, honestly, I say send this poem to anyone, anyone. I mean, anyone will benefit from it, whether or not you're very familiar with the ancient world. It's just it's very descriptive and um, it's timeless. I mean, I think the, the mark of a good poem is it, it kind of is applicable to any time. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so. absolutely. I wanted to thank you just once again for joining me on the podcast. Um, it was it was so fun to be able to talk to you for a little bit. Um, no, this was a joy. I really appreciate it. Uh, it while was, we're trapped. It was very fun. Yeah, it was very fun. Trireme Transit is now departing Ancient Odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said... Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. 
It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.